I'm Mark Middleton with Bill Schaefer, and this is Growing Bolder. And in the next hour, we'll meet the star of the 70s TV series, Good Times, Mr. Jimmy J.J. Walker. We'll also meet Tom Rush, a legendary folk musician who suddenly finds himself gaining in popularity once again. And dietitian Dr. Susan Mitchell has fun and digestible advice on making <laughs> your diet less boring and more healthy. Yeah, we're also going to hear from a former grief counselor who decided to try to write a novel in her 70s, and she actually found success with a series of books now called The Boob Girls. This program will motivate you folks. It'll educate, it'll hopefully inspire you to live each day to the fullest by hearing about others who have done it and letting them tell their incredible stories. And that's what makes this program different than all others. And that's what we mean when we say that this is Growing Bolder. Isn't it amazing how some songs can just make you feel a certain way? There's not many folks out there uh, that you can name from just a single one-word clue. You know what I mean? Well, we're about to meet the star of a TV sitcom that ended production all the way back in 1979. But when I say that one word without anything else, you will instantly know who that guest is. You ready? Dynamite! Oh, everybody knows who that is. But you know what? Beyond that, Mark, beyond that... We know absolutely nothing until the release of this brand new book called Dynamite. And it's different than all those other TV star autobiographies that you've read because as much as it's about him, it's also about us. It's about our culture, our childhood, our times, the bad times, and yes, the good times. I'm happy to welcome the star of Good Times, J.J., Jimmy Walker. Hey, Jimmy, how are you? Good. How are you guys? Hey, you're you're a writer. Who knew, huh? The book, I got to tell you, is really, really interesting. I mean, yeah, it's about your life, but it's really about our lives, too. Okay, I'll go for that. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Let's talk a little bit about your life, Jimmy, because as Bill mentioned, we know very little about you. Uh, and, And when you read the book, you realize there's a pretty good mix of both good and bad. You were raised in the Bronx. Uh, you visited relatives in the segregated South. You sold peanuts at Yankee Stadium. I mean, you were able to draw from a whole lot of different experiences when you started your acting career, weren't you? Yeah, well, you know, uh, being in New York, it's just a, the city is such a variety, such a, a, a potpourri of different kind of people and different kind of occupations. It always helps out. Were you one of those guys, Jimmy, that knew always what it was you wanted to do? When did you realize that you had this knack for entertaining people? Well, I still don't realize. <laughs> <laughs> you never know because it, this is a, a rough tumble business and 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 i always tell people in this business it's 95 to 98 percent rejection all you need is one person to say okay but usually it's a lot of rejection so you have to have a really strong uh mind and ego and a good support group to uh work with you you know, Jimmy, as we've mentioned a couple of times, people don't really know who you are, and I'm guessing most folks don't realize that you are college-educated. You are not J.J., but but yet uh, uh, almost uh, Jimmy and J.J. are inseparable. Has that been a, a blessing or a curse for you? No, that's been fine. You know, because the great thing is I'm not an actor. I think if you are an actor, yeah, sometimes it would slow some, some things down, even though People have, uh, you know, done well who have been on sitcoms, people like Billy Crystal, even Julia Louise Dreyfus with her uh, Veep series. She's nominated for an Emmy. So uh, it depends. It, you know, and some people, it, it, it doesn't work for. But being a comic, it never really, it, it, it doesn't really affect you that much because you're just out doing comedy. You know, and having the hit series, too, Jimmy, I think people got the idea that you just came from out of nowhere. But but you had helped create opportunities for guys like David Letterman and Jay Leno by hiring them as your writers. Yeah, I had, you know, both of those guys, along with people like Louie Anderson and then uh, Larry Charles from uh, uh, the Kelsey Grammer Show, all those kind of people like that. The list goes on. Robert Schimmel, Richard Jenny, uh, 
a lot of good people have helped me in terms of uh, being on my writing staff and stuff like that. And then they've gone on to, uh, hopefully, I feel great success. And uh, that that's always a good thing. We like that. And, of course, Norman Lear cast you as J.J. without even having to audition for, for Good Times. Uh, was that difficult? Uh, a difficult decision for you at the time? Did you have any sense that this would become part of our culture? Well, no, we never really knew that. You know, at, at the time that we did the show, in that era, Johnny Carson for stand-up was the, was the big thing. So for me, it was just a, like a brief pit stop. Uh, to be on the sitcom because uh, your main goal at that time was to be on Johnny Carson. Now a lot of people, you know, with the success of Ray Romano and Jerry Seinfeld, they would like to be on the show too. You have like people like Billy Goodell, who's on uh, Mike and Molly, those kind of people like that. Uh, and Whitney uh, Cummings, who's on her show, Whitney, and uh, Two Broke Girls, uh, those kind of things, the, the times have changed. But me and Gabe Kaplan and Freddie Prinze uh, were probably the main guys who were on shows at that era. And look, it's kind of surprising that even in our lifetimes, Jimmy, you, you made a huge difference in the, in the eyes of society just by, you know, there were huge debates. You talk about this in your book about on Good Times, whether you were too black or not black enough. I mean, you were all just trying to entertain people and you got caught in the middle of this vortex. Well, I think that's one of the reasons I, I if I ever get a chance to do another book, uh, I will write about the fact that uh, political correctness and that kind of stuff like that, especially in minorities, uh, has slowed down the progress in terms of having those kind of shows on the air. You won't see uh, uh, black shows or Hispanic shows. Nowadays, because of political correctness, uh, uh, minority characters are always the best, smartest characters instead of the, the funny wacky, kooky guys, but as you guys know, what people uh, really pay attention to are characters with a little spunk to them. But if everybody is good, you don't really have comedy or anything like that. But you can watch any any sitcom, any show, whether it be a drama or comedy, and you will see that, that the minority characters are always the greatest characters. And therefore, they, they will be the, the head of the hospital, the head of the police station, the head scientist. Uh, you know, you have uh, Dennis Haber, who is the president of the United States. You have Morgan Freeman, who has been God, I think, four times oh, yeah. now. So uh, it's that kind of thing like that. So you're not going to have the big minority stars like you used to have because uh, they don't want to put any spunk into the characters. Folks, this interesting, uh, educated, introspective man we're talking to is Jimmy J.J. Walker from the series Good Times. Uh, Jimmy, you're well into your your 60s. Don't want to put you 90 yet. (laughs) Well into your 60s. Now, what does the world look like through your eyes? Are Are you happy with where you are? Well, you, you, I think if you're happy where you are, sometimes it, it, it'll stop you from going upstream like a salmon. You always want more. You always want uh, different stuff. It's a, it's a tough business, and, and anybody in this business will tell you that, whether you be in the radio business or the television business or the movie business. It's a very, very difficult business. There's a lot of rejection. There's a lot of people that don't like you, but you just got to keep your head up and keep moving on until finally there's an opening for you somewhere. You know, even in getting the book done, which is like a 30-year odyssey, we just kept pushing and pushing and pushing. We went through, you know, at least six writers and four agents, and it takes a long time to get things done. You you love to see people get stuff done easily, but sometimes that's not the case for you. And, Jimmy, I want to remind people that you're on the road a tremendous amount, so there's a great opportunity, folks, and there's a good odds that he's coming to a town near you, so do check his website to, to see if he is going to be performing. You won't want to miss it. And, Jimmy, in our last 30 seconds or so, you mentioned how tough the business is, yet you must love it because you still choose to be a part of it. Yeah, I choose to, to try to hang in there if you can. It's tough, you know. Most people can keep up with me. My, my brand-new app, I have to push that APP, my brand-new app, very tough name from up above. We call it Jimmy Walker Original Act. 
<laughs> and that's it, you know. And it's J I M M I E, and you can pick that up and you get a lot of info about me. Anybody who cares, it's only ninety nine cents. After forty years in the business, I think I'm worth ninety nine cents. And he's worth a little more than that because if you want a good read, even if you're not sure you remember the show, or even if you're not sure what you thought of him, check it out because the book is called Dynamite. The and you have to say it that way when you ask for it in the bookstore; they won't know what and, you're talking about. You know, about. you got Tom. Tom uh, Rush coming up. He won't remember, but we worked together four or five times in the old days down in the village at the Bitter End. Nice. Nice. So, look, we got the coolest guys in town on this radio program, folks. What a fascinating interview with Jimmy Walker, folks. Check out his book and see him somewhere near you. Thanks, Jimmy. In a moment, an unforgettable visit with a folk music legend who has no regrets. This is Growing Boulder. Support for Growing Boulder provided by The Legacy Life Project from Macbeth Studio, preserving family history, stories, and memories for generations to come by creating personal video biographies of your loved ones. Everyone has a story worth preserving. LegacyLifeProject.com Check out Growing Boulder TV, airing on public television stations nationwide. Visit growingboulder.com slash TV for program listings and where to watch. This is Growing Boulder. I'm Mark Middleton with Bill Schaefer. And what if you were a musician, and a darn good musician at that, so good that a lot of people actually thought you were as brilliant as Bob Dylan? If a record company offered you a huge deal, but it was against your principles to become part of the corporate machine, would you take that deal? Well, Tom Rush did not. That's an amazing story because back in the 60s, as Mark said, Tom Rush was essentially the Dylan of the New England folk scene. He never signed that record deal and never did become a superstar, but he's still around, still making music, and more important, still has no regrets. Corina, Corina, where you been so long? I ain't had no loving girl. Since you've been gone. Tom Rush hasn't lost a thing. His voice is still warm and expressive, his guitar distinctive and sweet, just like it was all those years ago when he was faced with a difficult choice between stardom and simplicity. Each of us must do the things that matter. And all of us must see what we can see. Though it was long ago, you must remember You were once as young and scared as me In the 60s, praised by countless iconic musicians, Rush was poised for superstar status. He could have been as big as anyone. Rolling Stone called you the the father of the singer-songwriters, the first one. James Taylor said that, that you were at least as big as Dylan and as important as Dylan in the music scene. You know, I'm, I'm quite actually content with my level of notoriety. I, I've, you know, observing... People say that, Tom, but nobody believes you when you say that. Well, it's true. I mean, think about it. You know, some of my, some of my friends can't go to the supermarket. They can't go to a movie. They can't, or they have to wear a disguise when they leave the house. Well, see, they have, and it's, they have servants you know, to do that. They I, pay people to do all yeah, those Yeah, but then things. you're sitting locked up in your mansion all the time and it it must suck you know so you know i'm i'm i've got you know folks who will come up and tap me on the shoulder at the restaurant and say i really enjoy your work didn't mean to bother you and that's you know and that's fine i you know but that's about as as crazy as it gets He's always defined success on his own terms, and that hasn't changed in the 50 years he's been performing. And just as he sang back in 1968, he still believes he made the right choice. No regrets, no tears goodbye, don't want you back, we'd only cry. Say goodbye 
But Tom never really said goodbye. He's been out there all this time, just a little hard to find, until recently, when something happened that pushed him back into the limelight. And how do you react or how do you feel or does it even bother you when people go, Tom Rush, where have you been? <laughs> no, it's, it's inevitable. I think, um, you know, I've got, a lot of, I've got a lot of lapsed fans out there. And, you know, they, they just haven't, you know, been looking for me. And I, frankly, haven't been looking for them. But then something like this YouTube clip comes along. Yes, a YouTube clip of an obscure little song that Tom just happened to like. But he had no idea what was about to happen, all because of the Remember song. I might have left it on the counter. Or maybe outside in the car. Last time I remember driving was to that memory enhancement seminar. What's that far off distant ringing? It was part of my set, it got recorded. And then Mr. Dan Beach, the webmaster, was putting some songs up on YouTube. And I said, let's put up that memory thing. You know, some people might like it. And for reasons I don't understand, it was the one that that took off, it just cleared five million plays yesterday, I think. So you, 70-ish, become an overnight sensation. There you go. Sometimes it takes a while. <laughs> Supposed to meet someone for lunch today, but I can't remember where, or who it is that I am meeting. It's in my organizer somewhere. For fans from the 60s, it was like finding a long-lost friend, a homecoming 50 years in the making. For others, it was discovering a diamond in the rough. For Tom Rush, well, he felt like a kid again, even went back into the studio to record an album for the first time in 35 years. It's odd to me. I just a couple of years ago put out an album called What I Know after quite a long hiatus of not being in the studio. I put out some live stuff, but it's the first studio album in a long time and I, I honestly do think it's my best work I'm you know, finally starting to get it right Could it be at the age of 70 he's becoming what he shunned all those years ago could he be about to become a star It's not too late I could try spandex <laughs> Tom no no <laughs> You know, you don't have the electric guitars and the pyrotechnics because we can get that. What we can't get is a guy with a perspective, a, a guy with experience who can tell a story that resonates. You're taking this much too seriously. And that is the one thing he will not do because despite his newfound popularity, he still believes in keeping life simple. I have no roadie, no sound man, no you know, masseuse with me. <laughs> you should or, try that. <laughs> yeah, well, maybe so. Maybe the masseuse. But, um, you know, it's, it's, very, it's about as simple and therefore pleasant as it can get. Got a bird to whistle I got a bird to sing I ain't got Korean I ain't got a thing there's something about the purity of a guy and a guitar. No effects. Well, I, you know, and I enjoy that. I enjoy that, too. No, no smoke, no mirrors, no dancing girls. And it's a challenge. It's a challenge to build a connection with not just an audience, but the, each individual in the audience. And, and it's, uh, it's exhilarating. And maybe that's why, when it comes to making new music, it seems the guy with no regrets actually does have one. I should have done it sooner, I admit. I was wrong. But um, my problem right now is that I really have too many projects that I'd like to do all at once, so it's, it's kind of slowing me down. That's a nice problem. I wrote this one kid's song, the first kid's song that ever that ever I wrote that just kind of sort of came out of nowhere and it's 
taking on a life of its own. Well, I was in for a big surprise. Never saw a fish with such big blue eyes. Stoke up the stove, no. get down the skillet. No. Got an empty tummy, but I'm gonna fill it. It seems to be getting popular, and so I'm thinking, well, maybe I should write some more songs for kids. And that's that's kind of been happening, actually. There are actually more songs for for grown-ups, but, you know, they're kid-suitable. It's an example of what can happen when you stay true to your beliefs, because the man who traded stardom for stability seems to finally have found a little bit of both. Isn't it kind of interesting, you know, we, we did the Beatles wrote song you when I'm 64. We really thought that, oh, nobody's going to listen to anybody playing music once they're past 40. Here you are at 70, probably gaining more fans than you have since the, the core years. It's possible, yeah. And, and I mean, that's, that's incredible. I mean, it's almost like a second career. It's a second wave. It's a new you. Well, it is, you know, and, and I'm, I'm gratified but puzzled by it because a, a lot of my a lot of my contemporaries have you know sort of given up or you know, retired or you know gone off to some other line of line of endeavor uh, I guess I'm not talented enough to do anything else this is kind of I'm pretty much unemployable except for this so I'm very happy it's worked out Well, we all know success means different things to different people. Tom Rush is proof that the sweetest success is the kind that comes on your own terms. Yeah, something very nurturing about that story, Bill, and guys like Tom Rush, because we all know the celebrities out there that have achieved great success that are totally unhappy in their lives or failures. Uh, Bill mentioned in that piece that this is Tom's 50th year of being a performer. And to celebrate, get this, he's re-releasing his very first recording ever. It's called Live at the Unicorn. So think about that, 50 years years after he started, still going strong, headed in new directions, but pausing to celebrate the past. That is Tom Rush. I might have left it under the covers, maybe outside on the lawn, and I've got just one more ring to go before my answering machine kicks on. When it comes to improving your health and minimizing your risk for disease, many experts point out the benefits of antioxidants. So how do we get more of these in our bodies? Well, the answer is simple. Eat more fruits and vegetables. But one source of antioxidants is particularly interesting and tasty. We're talking about blueberries. What's the big deal about this little blue fruit? Let's find out from registered dietitian, expert in the field of nutrition, and host of the podcast Straight Talk about eating smart Here's Dr. Susan Mitchell. Thanks, Bill. You bet. Blueberries contain beneficial antioxidants called polyphenols, and they're dynamos when it comes to nutrition. They're a good source of the vitamins C and K, the mineral manganese, and provide four grams of fiber per cup. The best part... All of these benefits for only 80 calories. And did you know the deep blue-purple color tells you they're ripe and ready to eat? Make sure these purple gems are firm and plump when you buy them, and they'll keep in the fridge for 10 days. You know, there are a lot of experts out there, Susan, who refer to blueberries. I've heard them saying that they're very underrated as a key to wellness. And I understand there is new research now that says blueberries can even improve your brain health. Is that yeah, true? Yeah, yeah. You know, I love Love what's going on in research, particularly that it points to blueberries for their benefit in helping to prevent cognitive decline and maybe Alzheimer's disease. Here's the deal. Researchers believe that a substance called amyloid peptide builds up in the brain and it causes, think of it like a, a type of plaque to form. And this plaque then causes negative changes to the brain. But since blueberries are a rich source of antioxidants, they may help provide a natural protection against against this cognitive decline, and perhaps Alzheimer's disease. In fact, a recent study found that adults in their 70s who drank about two cups of blueberry juice per day over 12 weeks showed significant improvement on learning 
and memory test. Bottom line, enjoy blueberries and other berries. Add them to your yogurt, cereal, put them on pancakes or in a smoothie. So that's why they're such a big deal over the little fruit called the blueberry. She is registered dietitian and nutrition expert, Dr. Susan Mitchell. In a moment, a 65-year-old who took a 2,184-mile hike to conquer the Appalachian Trail. This is Growing Boulder. Support for Growing Boulder provided by... The Center for Health and Well-Being, now open in Winter Park. Wholeness, fitness, and medicine together in one convenient location, offering programs and services to promote healthy living and positive aging. More at yourhealthandwellbeing.org. Sign up for the Growing Boulder Insider Newsletter. Delivered to your inbox every week. Be the first to see our latest interviews, stories, and tips for making each day count. Sign up today at growingboulder.com. My guard stood hard when abstract threats to noble, to neglect. This is Growing Boulder. Mark Middleton along with Bill Schaefer. And our next guest is really a pretty amazing guy. He practiced law for over 50 years, and that means at least two things. One, he's got to be pretty darn good at it. And two, he spent a lot of time sitting at a desk. Oh, and Mark, you know, while he was sitting at that desk, one thought kept him going. And that thought was... One day, he was going to fulfill his lifelong dream. He wanted more than anything to hike the Appalachian Trail. Well, he started at the age of 65, did one section at a time, and it took him over five years, but he walked every step of the way. His experience was pretty incredible and captured in a book called Avalanche and Gorilla Jim. Let's say hi to Albert Dragon. Hey, Albert, how are you? I'm doing terrific, and I'm delighted to be with you guys today. How you doing? You need a foot massage today? <laughs> I could use a foot massage the last time I finished up on the trail. It's uh, it's rough on the feet, but uh, loads of fun. You know, it really is an amazing thing. Uh, two amazing things. A, you hike the Appalachian Trail, and B, you write a book about it. Uh, how come you're not just hanging out on a golf course? Well, you know, uh, first of all, hiking the trail is a dream I had since I was a kid. And if you ever had a dream, especially as a kid, uh, you want to get to it and do it. But I didn't know anybody that backpacked. So it sort of faded into the background as I got older. It almost faded away. And then when I got into my 60s, I said, you know, I'm going to give it a try. And didn't, so, didn't you have, like, a wife or some friends who said, Albert, that, that's nuts. Don't do that. Well, just about everybody said that to me. <laughs> they said, Al, you little, uh, little screwy up top. And I said, no, I'm going to do it. I got, I got my uh, gear together, went down to Georgia, climbed Springer Mountain, which is where the Appalachian Trail begins, and started walking north. And let's make sure folks understand, this is not a day hike. I mean, it's a total of, uh, what, 2,100 miles or so? Yeah, exactly. It's 2,184 miles. goes from Georgia to Maine. And uh, you're, you're absolutely right. This is up and down mountains all day long, through forests, over creeks on little logs, uh, and it's, I don't want to make it sound bad because it's actually a lot of fun, but it's, it's a hike. Uh, this is not a walk in the park. Well, the, at least, though, you know that when you hike the trail, you're totally safe. I mean, the, the trail has no history of dead bodies, dangerous criminals hiding out, or infamous murders along it, does it? Oh, yes, it does. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it does. Uh, there are at least... Ten notable and sometimes gruesome murders that have happened on the Appalachian Trail. While we were out there, the guy who blew up the Olympic Games in Georgia was hiding in the very same area where we were hiking, being chased by the FBI, the state police, local police, governmental agencies, and the interesting part about that is not only that he was out there when we were out there hiding in the same area, but my buddy, Gorilla Jim, you, you know, the, the, the title of the book is Avalanche and Gorilla Jim. I'm Avalanche, and my buddy was Gorilla Jim. Uh, those are <laughs> nicknames, trail names. 
Anyway, he lived only a few blocks away from uh, Eric Rudolph, who was the guy who set the bomb off at the Olympic Games. So there's a lot of that stuff in the books, kind of interesting sidelights and everything. But uh, basically, it is safe. I, I don't want people to think that you're going to go out there and run into murderers and uh, terrorists. Uh, it's, uh, it, it's got a history of being in existence 75 years, and 10 murders in 75 years is a heck of a lot better than you find in some big cities in one week. It sounds like one of those things that, that that seems to get better the further it is in the rearview mirror. Reminds me of an, an old Mayberry episode where Aunt B went to Washington with all of her friends and they hated it until they got the pictures back and started to look at it, and then they loved it. Uh, uh, do you enjoy it more and more all the time? Well, it gets tougher and tougher. You know, uh, I'm... Uh, I'm 75 now, and we're planning uh, to to take a a hike through the trail in Vermont uh, in a short while. And uh, it's a lot easier when you're younger, but when you're older, I think you appreciate it more because it is difficult, and you're doing it, and it's an accomplishment that you just can't compare with anything else that you've done in your life. You know, that's a great point because, I mean, you know, to summarize the book, the reason the book's so exciting, you almost died. You went through pretty much every kind of hardship possible, but still you strongly suggest that all baby boomers especially should consider hiking and not just for the health benefits. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, First of all, you get a great feeling of accomplishment. But the health benefits are are an absolute... uh, uh, necessity to, to consider. As, as we all know, obesity in this country has become an epidemic. And baby boomers are now coming into retirement, and they've got to think about not just sitting on a sofa watching TV, but doing something that will give them uh, tremendous feelings of satisfaction and also knock off a couple of pounds and do their hearts and the rest of their bodies a lot of good. So, Al, do you, do you feel like you're at 75 now? Are you done with adventures, or, or you, are there more still to come? No, no, no. I think that people should realize that they can live the prime of their life no matter how old they are. It shouldn't be a matter of age. It should be a matter of deciding to do something and going out and doing it. As, as you guys well know, because you're the greatest advocates of it, people can really do much more than they think they can. They just have to set their minds to it and get out and do it. Well, you know, if you've been sitting on a sofa for 10 years, I don't recommend strapping 50 pounds on your back and going up a mountain. Maybe you should see your doctor first and get a good exercise plan. But uh, don't let age be an obstacle to anything. And really, everybody starts somewhere, and there is a time when we all make that decision to get off the couch. That's the amazing Albert Dragon. That's why we had him on the show. And let's end with one of his best quotes about the Appalachian Trail. He says it can either be an electrifying, life-changing journey or the worst trip you'll ever take. And to him, at times, it was a little bit of both. Check out Avalanche and Gorilla Jim and reignite the spark that is waiting to be ignited in your life. Coming up, a writer who went from being an incurably picky eater to one of the most popular food journalists in the country. This is Growing Boulder. Support for Growing Boulder provided by Winter Park's new Crosby Wellness Center at the Center for Health and Well-Being. More than just a gym, it features unique medically integrated programs, activities for all ages and skill levels, and free group exercise classes with memberships. More at CrosbyWellnessCenter.org. Stay connected to Growing Boulder for daily doses of hope, inspiration, and possibility. Find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram for our latest stories and motivational pictures. Stand 
Hi, folks. I'm Mark Middleton along with Bill Schaefer. This is Growing Boulder. And, yeah, you hear a lot on this program and others about how important a healthy diet is for energy, well-being, and even for longevity. And most people do agree that those diets are pretty much plant-based. Now, that's fine for some people, but there are many others who never really learn to love their vegetables. (laughs) And our next guest, turns out, is one of them. But instead of just being a hater, she tried to figure out why she was such a picky eater. Was it by choice? Or was it something else, and was there something she could do about it? And the result is the first book ever written for, yep, you, picky eaters. And for those who love them, it's the perfect book for anybody who wants to learn the truth behind our feelings about food. It's called Suffering Succotash, great title, A Picky Eater's Quest to Understand Why We Hate the Foods We Hate. Let's welcome Stephanie Lucianovich. Hey, Stephanie, how are you? I'm good. How are you guys? Are you still a picky eater? I am to some degree, but I'm certainly not as picky as I used to be. And so I, when I wrote the book, I call myself a recovering picky eater because I took my, what I thought was an extreme hate of foods, mostly vegetables, to uh, an extreme love. And I went to culinary school and I became a food writer. And now I made a career out of loving food, not hating it. And was this one of those conscious things where you had to force yourself to stare into the belly of the beast, you know, look at the one thing that really <laughs> bugged ways, you? Yeah, especially certain things that I would be faced with. But at the time, I was 27, and I was dating the guy that I would later marry, and he ate everything, and I was so embarrassed that I didn't, and I hid it from him. And, you know, love and shame are very powerful uh, influences, and the fear of him finding this side of me out and uh, not wanting to date me anymore was more powerful than my (laughs) fear of food. So when he ate certain things, ordered them, I would try them here and there. And he was a very patient, kind, non-judgmental guy, still is. And so it helped me. But, you know, there was a time I went to my in-law's house and they were aware that I was, quote-unquote, allergic to peppers. So they didn't serve me peppers, but they served me a poached peach for dessert. And I hated peaches. Hmm. But... I ate it because this was my future in-laws. And again, I was more afraid of the non-acceptance than I was of the food. And then I loved peaches. Now I love peaches. They were, it was an amazing dish, and it was freshly picked peaches from Maryland and all of that. So there have been times I've stared down the belly of the beast and, and won. There are times that I still stare it down, and I don't win. Well, certainly there, there, there's a, a component here about how we were raised, what our parents fed us. And I'm wondering if there's also a, an age component to this, Stephanie, because, you know, I'm 61. I'm of the age when I was raised, we had canned peas, we had canned asparagus, we didn't do French uh, fresh vegetables, and I hated all of those. Beets to this day will make me throw up, and, and beets are supposed to be great. I just can't try them. Beets are a very common thing for people to dislike. Uh, genetically speaking, you might actually have... Uh, I can't remember what it is. I think it's called like geosim, where you taste really the dirt in beets more than anything else. And other people, it can happen when they eat uh, catfish. And it's a muddy taste, essentially. But I agree with you. I grew up with frozen vegetables, and they didn't have much more flavor than than the canned stuff. So, yeah, there's a component to how you're raised. But in the book, as I say, I'm not going to get in a long list of memoirists who blame their parents or their mothers. (laughs) My mom didn't love to cook. Um... But the stuff that she liked to cook that she actually enjoyed cooking because she liked eating it was the stuff I liked to eat. So maybe there's a component of her taking more care with the foods that she likes so they tasted better, you know. But um, it can be the way we're raised and what we're exposed to. It can be your biology. It can be your genetics. It, it all comes down to your neurology anyway. And there's psychology involved too. So being the way you're raised is just one possibility of why you might be a picky eater. So are, are Stephanie, are picky eaters, are, are they similar in the kind of things they like or don't? Because Mark mentioned beets. You know, a lot of people hate beets. I couldn't stand the canned asparagus either. Or, or is it as broad as broad can be? I think it can be very broad, but you can also start to find some groupings. Like there's a lot of people who just don't eat vegetables. There's a lot of people who just don't eat fruit. You know, they'll, they'll cut out whole food groups. But then I did find that there's a, there's a huge number of people who don't like tomatoes for a texture issue. And because, as one friend put it, they feel unformed in the mouth, like something that's not quite done yet. It comes down to texture a lot of the time. And you can say that that is a commonality is for me, for instance, I still don't like textures of things that I call hot cereal. So malt meal, cream of wheat, uh, hot oatmeal, and this then extends to, you know, uh, rice pudding and that kind of thing. I don't like that texture. I don't like the way it feels. It's just very unpalatable to me. 
so yeah, there's a lot there's a lot of overlap with people. Well, you take a shot at succotash in the title of your book. I'm guessing you don't like succotash. Can succotash be good? I don't. I really, really don't. I grew up with it out of a bag. Again, it's probably called mixed vegetables now. But um, I have to say though, last night I had a book party at my friend's restaurant. And he teasingly made me a succotash salad, and I ate it, and it was so good. But he also did stuff like he left out lima beans. He added grains. He added really good salad dressing to, you know, a vinaigrette that he made. So it's not exactly succotash. So I'll eat it if Brett makes it for me. Well, sure, but there's a reason the word suffering comes before succotash (laughs) every time you see the word. But this is an issue, too, though, that can drive parents crazy. I mean, you want your kids to be healthy, but all they want to do is go to the fast food joint. Did you find a way to get kids to be able to trade fries for Brussels sprouts? Not necessarily. And, you know, unless the pediatrician's overly worried about the development or the health of a kid, I don't think parents need to be so worried about it. And I say this as a mother of a three-year-old who goes through this. Some days he adores his okra. Other days he absolutely hates it. This is, this is kids. This is typical toddler behavior. And I, I just <clears throat> want to point out to parents that I, it was tw- I was 27 before I stopped being Michael Pollan's worst nightmare where I didn't eat plants and I really didn't eat grains. And I was totally fine. I didn't have rickets. I didn't have scurvy. I didn't have any of that stuff. So, you know, seriously, if your pediatrician's not worried, parents need to relax a little bit more. Well, it's all led to a fascinating book, Stephanie. And what is the bottom line here? Should we tolerate the picky eater? Should we celebrate the picky eater? Should we force the picky eater? I mean, what's the takeaway? Definitely tolerate. Don't don't force. You don't need to celebrate, but it's picky eating is not a choice. You know, it's not like being a vegetarian or a raw foodist or whatever. It's nobody's choice to be a picky eater and be afraid of going to a friend's house for dinner or afraid of going to a restaurant because of what you might encounter. This is a very real, scary thing for people, and we're not doing it to be annoying. We're not doing it because we're xenophobic or closed-minded or what have you. We're doing it because we plain just don't like the food, and it's a big deal for us because, you know, the food becomes a part of you. It's in your mouth. We don't tend to throw down over music, really, but for some reason, food's more polarizing. So... Tolerate and sympathize and just treat us gently. It's a title you will remember. The book is called Suffering Succotash, A Picky Eater's Quest to Understand Why We Hate the Foods We Hate. And, man, we sure want to thank Stephanie Lucianovich for an interesting conversation. And, you know, let's all go home and open up that can of asparagus and take a bite in honor of Stephanie. Coming up, meet the author of Burned Out Old Broads and find out why that series of books is flying off the shelves. This is Growing Boulder. Support for Growing Boulder provided by the UCF College of Medicine, where physicians, scientists, and teachers are discovering innovative solutions for today's medical challenges and bringing them to you. Learn more about the college's physician practice at ucfhealth.com. Subscribe to Growing Boulder Magazine, now with more information, articles, and photos than ever before. This quarterly publication is unlike any other, filled with the kind of inspiration you need to live your life to the fullest. More information at growingboulder.com slash subscribe. We are Bill Schaefer and Mark Middleton, and you're listening to Growing Boulder Radio, the program that proves if you put yourself out there, you never know where life can take you. And we're about to meet the author of over 100 books, but she could never have written a novel. At least she didn't think she could. So mostly out of wondering if she, after she retired, she gave it a try. And now in her 70s, she's created an entire series. I love that motivation. Do something just to see if you can do it. Nobody is more surprised by her success than she is, especially after a career as a grief counselor. In fact, she and her husband are the co-founders of the oldest and largest bereavement center in the entire nation, the Ted E. Bear Hollow Center for Grieving Children in Omaha. She's a nationally known speaker. She's written or edited over 100 books on grief, but now she's known as the author of the Boob Girls series, Burned Out old broads who find their way into one mystery after another. She is Joy Johnson. Hey, Joy, how are you today? Hey, guys. I'm very good. Thank you, and thank you for having me on the show. Wow. From writing about grief for children to writing about burned-out old broads, what's a nice girl like you doing writing about the boob girls? 
well, it's kind of like, what's a nice guy like you doing saying boob on the air all the time? Well, you know what? You've given us reason to say it, and we'll say it as much as we can. You've got to say it. And frankly, Joey, people call us that all the time anyway. So, oh, Well, it, there's a lot of meanings to that word. And uh, I, I really have enjoyed this. It's been a fantastic gift. The, uh, the center we found it actually was Centering Corporation and Teddy Bear Hollow, so you were right both times. Um, so I wrote all these grief books, and then the novels just kind of came. And like you said, I was really surprised at their success. Uh, I did them mainly as gifts for colleagues and friends from you know people who worked with us at Centering Corporation. And then a friend called and said, I want 50 copies of this from a nursing school class. She was 87. And another friend called and said, I want 60 copies for our customers, and they just took off. And I have been having nothing but fun with them. Four burned-out old broads, widows from Omaha. Mm -hmm. So there's kind of grief implied in it, but it is a comedy mystery that's laugh out loud. And thank you so much for liking them. Hey, Joy, is it something like, you know, the Golden Girls hit the road or, you know, Betty White and Three Friends, or, 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 or is it something different? No, it's kind of like the Golden... Somebody said it's the Golden Girls on steroids. (laughs) And I like that. And other people have said it's seasoned Nancy Drews, and I really like that. Uh, You know, it's a different thing. I think there is a bond with women that is entirely different. It's, It's a bond that kind of develops that conversational intimacy and friendship. And so these four gals have that. And they're old, so <laughs> they have illnesses. Uh, Robinson Leary, the, the Ph.D., the black professor, has a heart condition. Uh, Hadley Joy Morris Whitfield, the socialite, has had cancer. Mary Rose McGill, the sweet Catholic girl, has arthritis and constipation problems <laughs> and ends up on, in book two, breast cancer. So they're, you know, they're... They're older women who act like older women but have adventures and fun like older women do. And God bless you for that, Joy. What we like about this series is that it is fun, it is funny, but but uh, uh, you, you know what? It's respectful. You're, you're having fun with your characters, but you're not making fun of them. It was written by somebody who's been there, it seems. Yeah, you, and exactly right. And I, ha- I do have a soapbox, which I get on and talk loudly from in every book, and that is that I think older women are beautiful, and not just spiritually and emotionally, but physically. And if, if you look at us, guys, uh, if you look at us, our faces have been chiseled by sorrow and laughter and tears, and our hair is blown thin by winds of experience. We have so much knowledge and wisdom in our heads that there's not room for it, so it has to trickle down to the rest of our bodies, and that's why we get thicker. <laughs> so I'm, I'm working hard for changing society a little bit anyway to see that there's real beauty in age. You know, there's character, and, and it's like the, the mountains that have been beaten and burned out. The girls are burned out physically sometimes. We say what doesn't leak creaks, what doesn't creak hurts what doesn't hurt has probably been surgically removed <laughs> and so they, they have all of the all of the beauty and they're very diverse they're very different and and they just came they aren't modeled after anybody they just i i remember reading once that agatha christie said i hate hercule perot her you know one of her main characters she said i hate hercule perot he always takes over. And this is kind of like what happened with me. Uh, Maggie Patton drove her old Jeep into the cemetery and shot bullets into her husband's headstone, who he was a mean old dude. And after that, away they went with the other girls. Hey, Joy, in, in the last minute or so we have, let's talk a little bit. Your real life work has been something that a lot of people just don't want to get involved in. I mean, you've immersed yourself in understanding grief and sharing other people's griefs. How has that shaped you, and what, what have you learned about life from that point of view? I, w- I learned a really important thing. Um, well, mainly that a lot of things. The 
grief is something we all experience. There's no life that doesn't experience grief. And while we think we should be happy all the time, we really kind of go from grief to grief to grief with happy in between. But what happens with grief is you lose your ability to dream. You lose your ability to dream ahead. It becomes all-consuming. I have two friends right now who are dying, and it's all-consuming in their lives. Um, When someone does die, it becomes all-consuming. It's all you, you, it's all you think about for, for a long time afterward. And so you don't dream of the future, and you kind of walk through day by day. I've learned you don't get over grief. You get through it. Things get better. They change. But you always have... And, you know, you too, you've had people you love who die, and you don't want to forget them. Hmm. And so it's a matter of integrating that grief, making it a part of your life, growing from it. You said it really well. You know, none of us want to get involved in that, and we make all kinds of excuses, but all we have to do when we have a friend who is grieving is just go up to them. If they want a hug, give them a hug and say, I'm here. Hmm. I, I tend to say this is a real bummer. Joy, there's just not enough time, but let's wrap it up by saying that your, your first career has served your second career very well because you bring in an incredible amount of passion to this soapbox, as you say, that is the Boob Girls. Folks, if you want to know more about this amazing series, go to theboobgirls.com. She is Joy Johnson. Oh, my, Billy. Another great show. <laughs> ah. This week it was comedy star Jimmy Dynamite Walker, folk music legend Tom Rush, an author and adventurer, a food critic that provides hope and inspiration for us all. Uh, and that's what we try to do here at Growing Boulder, folks. We try to get guests to come to these microphones that have something cool to say. Guests who prove that anything is possible at any stage of our life. Isn't that a great message? I mean, it's one we need to hear more often, so... What do you say next week? And every week you'll hear from more celebrities, authors, experts, and people out there with great stories to tell. People who might convince you not just to hang on to your dreams, but to have the courage to try to make those dreams come true. Keep an eye out for Growing Boulder TV on public television stations all across the country. Find out where it airs near you at growingbolder.com. Isn't it time you started Growing Boulder? Growing Boulder is a production of Boulder Broadcasting, all rights reserved. This program was recorded live at the studios of WMFE Orlando. It is written and produced by Jill Middleton, Jackie Carlin, Mark Middleton, and Bill Schaefer. Executive producer is Katie Widrick. Technical director is Jason Morrow. Chief audio engineer is Mac Dula. And our most important team member is you. Remember, when it comes to Growing Boulder, it's not about age. It's about attitude. Crew.